Now entering Nerdist.com. You made it weird. What's happening, weirdos? What what a what an amazing treat to have the legend Norman Lear on this show. I mean, how did this happen? I'll tell you how it happened. It happened because Judd Apatow knows Norman Lear, and I know Judd Apatow, and I'm so grateful for that, obviously. And one of the many things that I got from this relationship is to sit down with Norman Lear and Judd. Judd came. Two amazing legends of show business sitting down together with me at Norman's house. It's incredible. Let's get to it as quickly as possible. I'm sure you guys know all about Norman. We talk about it. Created All in the Family. Just a pioneer of television. I'm not even going to do... We talk about it in the podcast. It's an amazing man that I got to sit down with. Let's get to it as quickly as possible. We have a new sponsor. Your sex life is about to get an upgrade. Skin, S-K-Y-N. Condoms are made from a revolutionary... Polyosaprene, uh, polyosaprene material called Sky and Feel. Sky and Feel. That's amazing. It's softer and more comfortable than traditional latex, so both you and your partner get a natural feel full of sensitivity. We are overdue for an upgrade on condoms, and we finally have it. While sex with skin is amazing for everyone, skin condoms are also completely safe for anyone with a latex allergy. That's amazing. You don't have to go to pig intestines anymore. Skin is here to save you. They are just as safe as latex condoms, and they offer the same level of protection against pregnancies and STDs. Are you ready to try them? Go to buycondoms.online to explore skin condoms, personal lubricants, and more. And with the offer code WEIRD, you'll get free shipping on your first order no matter what you buy. Try it out. Skin Condoms was nice enough to send me some. I will say they are lovely. Wonderful, get into it, do it, try it, and then, and then do it. It's going to be great. I also want to plug, uh, Judd and I both want to plug our amazing friend uh, Chris Gethard. If you're in New York or traveling to New York, he is doing a one-man show called Career Suicide. Uh, we've told the story a couple times on the show before, but Judd did our live podcast with Kumail and Chris Gethard. We actually talk about this on this episode. Kumail is doing a movie with Jed. I'm doing a TV show for HBO with Jed. And Chris is doing an amazing one-man show uh, in New York called Career Suicide. It's at the Lynn Redgrave Theater. It's happening now. I am definitely going next time I'm in the city. It is uh, not to be missed. Unbelievably hilarious, candid, vulnerable, and real. Chris is an amazing true talent. For tickets, careersuicideshow.com. You can also listen to Chris on this podcast. He's amazing. Uh, so go check that out. Uh, thank you, Skin Condoms, for your support. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, it just so happens that the Not Feeling It Chicken t-shirt went back on sale today as well. So if you go to PeteHolmes.com and click on the Not Feeling It Chicken, it is available now. Sometimes you have to you know, say you want it and then it goes into production. It's in production now. So if you want a Not Feeling It t-shirt, get into that at PeteHolmes.com. All right, guys. I, I can't believe this happened. Thank you, Judd. Uh, thank you, Norman. <laughs> let's let's get into this right now. Norman Lear, get into it. And we have seen one another. Yeah, we had lunch that one time. One time yeah. And I was uh, very quiet because I, I didn't want to interrupt. I love seeing you two together. Right. So when Judd said he wanted to come, I mean. Oh, it's fair. 
How do you? I said he's obviously more than welcome. But what a what a piece of history to have it. you guys talk together. I love it. And, this and is Katie. You're the producer. Yes. So how, tell me about the organization or the. Uh, this is how did it come about? Well, that's a that's a good question. We we're part of a a podcast brand called uh-huh. Nerdist, which is Chris Hardwick. Do you know Chris Hardwick by I any know chance? The name. Yeah. I'm- he uh TV host and podcaster and then uh I guess it was how many years has it been? Yeah. 5? Five? 5 years ago I heard about these things called podcasts and I love having one-on-one personal conversations uh-huh. with people. It's one of those things in life that I feel like there's a deficit of it. Or right. I think maybe you'd agree we're so connected but oh it's when, so when rare. you see people sitting around a family of five, three of them on cell phones. That's right. You bet we're disconnected. It's killing me. So there's something kind of technologically you know, relevant now. It's very 2016 to have a podcast. But to me, it feels like having coffee in still air. You know what yeah. I mean? You're just, for the next however long we have you, you and I will just talk. We're going to be. It's amazing. Fun. I've got three days. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hold you to that. This podcast you typically want, very long. What's that? Oh, I'm good. I'm um, good. I was, uh, is it starting, Pete? Yeah, we, we are recording. I, I noticed that you have every script of every show you've ever done here. And uh, I opened up to a random All in the Family episode, which was about... Sally Struthers being depressed because she was on the subway and how sad everybody looked about their lives. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's like us. That was, that was, and that was before the Jimmy Carter malaise speech. Uh-huh. <laughs> how wild. Yeah. That was just an episode that the whole episode was about people seem sad and depressed with their lives. And did they talk about reasons in the economy or? The political. Well, what was interesting, it seemed very existential of just uh-huh. what does it all mean? Mm-hmm. And that was first season. Mm-hmm. That's pretty remarkable. I love that. I, I confess I don't remember the episode. Yeah. Well, it but it sounds episode. like us. It didn't work at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was so funny that's, just opening up. That's why the show crashed. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was all hysterical yeah. also. Well, that's, that was one of the things Jed and I were talking about on the way over that we would love to pick your brain about is just how much things have changed and how much they haven't changed. Yeah, okay. I, I want to pick your brain just enough to know which script to look for. Which episode Because I want, to, I want oh. to see that. Yeah. I can, uh, I can, I'll, I'm going to pull it again. It's in the first season. <laughs> it's in the first season. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, there they were dealing with... <laughs> Feelings of isolation? <laughs> this is a joke that made me laugh, Norman. It was that uh, Rob Reiner's character says, uh, yeah, I know how you feel. Every day I get in the in the, in the the shower and I take my shower. And so why do I do it? Every day I take my shower and then I have to shave. I got to shave every day. And sometimes I look at that razor and I think, why don't I just slit my throat? But you know what I do? I just shave. And Archie says, I wish you would have lost that argument. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that to me is the feeling of the human condition is sometimes I wonder if you feel like this again, like you wake up some days and that's the bad feeling of like, why do I have to no. get in my car again or eat again? Isn't that something we fight against? No, I, I wake up, uh, I, I go to sleep. Mm. With the taste of coffee the next morning, and 
<laughs> I love my coffee in the morning. Yeah. And, uh, and I get the New York Times, the LA Times, and the Wall Street Journal. And uh, I'll get up at 6.30. I won't do yoga until 9 or 9.30. Uh-huh. And I will have read the papers by then and had the greatest time reading the papers. And it, that sounds deliberate, though. I mean, would you say it well, takes it's very deliberate. to stay interested? Can you stay... say fuck on this thing? Oh, right? you can say yeah. fucking. <laughs> All of the it's good fucking ones. deliberate. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's something that I didn't realize until my 30s that I was like, being curious, being interested, being uh-huh. alive takes effort. You can't like just take it for granted that you're going to get up. Here you are, you're 94. Yeah. Still curious, still engaged, still into it, obviously. But, but I know, know people it, that are 24 that aren't Why, why wouldn't I be interested when you consider that it took me every split second of the 94 years, some months, mm. some weeks, some days, some minutes, just to get here answering this question and watch you with your green microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it took me every split second of my life to get here. Right. To walk into the room and see Judd here, which was a kick in the head. I mean, I love it. (laughs) Uh, If it took all that time to get to this moment, why wouldn't I treasure the moment? Mm. Do you think some of that disposition is uh, just an inherited gene? Like when you meet somebody like uh, Martin Short, and and he talks about that he has a very positive disposition that he thinks is just built into him. And other people... I mean, you've dealt with every type of creative personality. They're just built the opposite way. Or did you have to evolve and develop the attitude that you have now? I think more, I think some of it had to be innate or it wouldn't, couldn't Mm -hmm. occur. But, uh, but developed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it makes sense to me. It does make sense. It makes sense to me. I I look at uh, the other night, was it just last night? I'm sitting with a hundred people at Universal, and they've run the picture, and I'm t- doing a Q and A afterwards. And uh, and I, I, you know, I mean, independent of the conversation, I'm inwardly thinking, it's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> just amazing. These people came just to look at this thing about me, and I'm looking at their faces. Uh, and it took every split second of my life to get here, and then every split second of their lives yeah. add them up, and I'm way ahead of them. <laughs> what do you think your work means to them? Like, do you have a sense of why we're all touched by what you've done? Well, you know, in your generation, I don't know whether you get this, because you're as responsible as I am for people laughing. Uh, but what I get is... There was so much less of it, three networks. Uh, I, we watched it with my, my my dad and I laughed at this. My father, I, I hear it more often about fathers, but I hear it too about families. We laughed. We looked mm-hmm. at the show as a family. Mm. And they could afford to do that more in terms of time because it, there were so many less distractions. Mm-hmm. There was only at the beginning one television set in the house that yeah. was in the living room. Halfway through the run of ball in the family, you heard about sets in the bedroom hmm. and one in the kitchen. And, uh, but at the beginning, everybody gathered yeah. in the living room to watch 
So hearing people, and then I do hear, especially uh, African Americans talking about the Jeffersons and Good Times and so forth, and Sanford and Son, that they they're, they're only in their fifties. They didn't watch it when it was on, but they've been watching it. They they watched it when their family wanted to see it with their kids. And mm. so the family, the fa- parents were seeing it again. Well, that's how I was with All in the Family. I came to it late. Yeah. And I don't think I told you this when we had lunch. I was just like, oh, my God. Every male in my family of a certain age is doing Archie Bunker. Uh-huh. Not not necessarily reflecting, although sometimes reflecting yeah. their, his views, but doing comedy in a way that I was like, my Uncle Larry, who I just saw, I was like, I never knew how much you were influenced by that show. <laughs> if you heard him, you would think he was doing an impression. And I just thought that's how my uncle was. And then I watched the show and I was like, oh my God, what a what a tool to help me understand what it was like when he was watching the show. Not as a young man, yeah. but you know, as a, a relatively young man. And here I am watching it and using it as a bridge to understand my family. It's, it's such a wonderful. I, I, I love hearing that. I get I I get a lot of that. Yeah, and you have to be getting some of that. You know, when people are laughing together, mm-hmm. together. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't know how many hundred times I've stood behind the three hundred or two hundred and some people at, at the tapings, mm. and uh, when a big audience. Uh, bit laughs with a real belly laugh. Yeah. They have a tendency to come out of their seats a little bit and go forward and then rock back. And uh, it's a wave of. I was uh, going to say it's a wave, it, 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 and it's as spiritual as as it is. I don't know. You, you can't go to war That's laughing. Right. <laughs> That's right. Well, you've forgotten your separateness in that moment. That's one of the yes. things I love. Oh, that's, that's a great expression. You've forgotten your separateness. Well, it's like your bumper sticker, just another yeah. version of yeah. you. There's nothing more beautiful than that. I think that's an enlightened thought. And comedy, and especially the comedy you've done, helps us laugh in this weird nebulous area. And, and suddenly we are just one thing mm-hmm. looking at ourselves. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree that Archie is this character who I think would do better, be happier if he could stop focusing on the differences between things. He's almost right. poisoned and plagued by differences. And ultimately, it makes him very unhappy. Mm-hmm. Carol O'Connor said something similar like that in an interview. But when we're laughing, suddenly we do forget our egos and our stories and we're one, yeah, we're one. thing. Yeah. Is- I think music, that's a way of doing that too. Sure. I'll, I will never forget uh, my daughter, Maddie, who happens to be home from college, uh, wanted to go to uh, the, uh, in Austin. Oh, to South by Southwest. Austin City Limits. Yeah. And, uh, and so T-Bone Burnett was playing there. He's a good friend. And I talked to him, and so we were standing on the stage. He was touring with, and I'm not going to remember the names, <laughs> uh, a rock group. And uh, but we were standing under the an overhang, Austin City Limits. There must have been twenty thousand people in the hot Austin sun, on the grass, rocking like crazy. That's right. When uh, these stars were playing. Mm. 
I'm guessing and, it's Robert Plant and Allison. And it was Robert Plant and Allison. Oh, yeah, very clutch. And, <laughs> and uh, but he did that because he knew that my daughter was 21 and she was only 12, so he subtracted nine years. And of course, he remembers every year who plays it. <laughs> That's how he put it together. <laughs> he has an insight. So I'm no. standing there with his daughter, and she's and I'm watching them rock. And then T-Bone has said to me that he's going to, he had written a ballad, and he's going to play this ballad. So he's in one, facing this crowd and singing this ballad. And I, I'm, you know, I'm almost there as I, as I want to talk about it. And the crowd that was rocking and, you know, are standing as still as a plant. Mm. And the look on my daughter's face is as dreamy as anything I've seen. Mm. And I was overwhelmed with what music can do, just the way I've been overwhelmed with the audience laughing from the belly and what comedy, what a laugh can do. Yeah. It's, I know exactly what you're talking about. Sometimes you look at thousands and thousands of people like you were watching a show, and it suddenly seems very comical that, like, each of these people has a favorite cereal, mm-hmm. and each of these people has parents, and they all have, they do or don't believe in ghosts. But they, that doesn't make any sense. It's a comical idea because they all seem like an audience. Yeah. They seem like one. And I think we yearn to feel that, that feeling of we connectedness. Do. And when we're all focused, this is why live comedy, this is why you talk about watching the tapings live. It's like church. Something is happening mm-hmm. that regardless, Democrat, Republican, this, that, the other, we're laughing. And if I want to know who you really are, I'll look at what makes you laugh. We have all these, you know, mm-hmm. costumes we wear, and this is what I think I'm supposed to say. But when I get you to laugh at something, isn't that a good glimpse at who they truly are? Where were you raised? Outside of Boston. Outside of Boston. Yeah. I went to school in Boston. Emerson, I know. Yeah. yeah. And you're an East Coast fella. Yeah. Do you still feel like an East Coast fella? <laughs> I still feel like an East Coast fellow and a West Coast fellow. Yeah. And uh, wherever the hell I am. You know, it's, you know, it's funny that you say that because I think there's something interesting about the in-between place, why we can enjoy... Archie is obviously, I'm sure, something you talk about a lot, but why we can enjoy laughing at something that we may not agree with. And I think it's fun. There's a need for us to experience all the sides of being Mm -hmm. human, including the ugly sides, the dark sides, and the gross sides. These days, though, I feel like people are on the record more. So if I share that I like something, I am supposedly endorsing every single thing that it could mean. So we're all becoming kind of political and that offends me and very proper. Whereas all this time ago, you were doing something that now would seem so evolved and, and giving the shadow self somewhere to play. And don't, don't you feel like we're losing that? It's becoming very buttoned down and well, I don't, I don't find that very funny. When, like, there was a time when we, we were laughing at things, even though they might be offensive, even if they offended us. He's so good. <laughs> I guess I, I encapsulate that question too. Did the people that that uh, disagreed with the politics of all in the family still enjoy it and laugh at it? I, I think they do. I'm I'm lost in in thinking about how well you do this <laughs> and how good this conversation is and how much it's like the laughter, the music, the That's whatever. Right. For me, you know, I'm 
I couldn't enjoy it more. It's a great moment. <laughs> well, I hope so, so. I'll tell you a funny story, though. Pete and I went in to pitch a TV series <laughs> to HBO, which we shot, and it will be on in the air in February. It's called Crashing, about a young, not very good yet comedian in New York, a religious man who becomes a comedian. And he's in New York sleeping on different people's couches because he has no money. But when we went into HBO, Pete spoke like that very eloquently <laughs> without humor for a really long amount of time. Yeah. And then when the meeting ended, they all called me and said, that, well, that was delightful, but that was not funny. <laughs> Where's the comedy in this? And I, he was talking about the religious part. He, he was. He was talking about philosophically because he knows – so well what he wants to express and he can break it down and it's really helpful when writing the show and I had to say to Pete you know when we go in do bits you know, <laughs> a couple of dick jokes yeah. a couple well you also till said- we make the sale <laughs> <laughs> then we'll get intellectual again I have to remind myself I do interviews now and I go Jed is mad at me even though you're not there he's yelling at me from as a specter saying be funny be funny be funny sometimes I just want to talk about the shadow self as I was saying but what what does that make you think about the need we have to laugh at our ugliness or our wrongness. It's not about being right all the time, right? I'm thinking about it. I haven't been asked the question before. Uh, you know, I think biologically uh, there's a need to laugh. There's a need to love. Laughter, there's love in laughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, and 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 well, and connected and a real deep connectedness, mm-hmm. uh, and among strangers. I mean, that's uh, what could be more important than connecting people who are absolute strangers, enjoying the same, like a piece of art too. I don't know how many thousands, tens of thousands of people looked at that. Yeah, uh, piece of art over the years, long before we it, it came here, and uh, and felt something because they were connected by some appreciation, some that's right degree of pleasure. Because we are kind of walking around, I wouldn't say alone or lonely, but no one knows exactly what it feels like to be you. So when you can look at a piece of art, I would even argue that art, when you painted a painting of a house, you go, when I look at a house, it looks like this. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like, this is what house feels like in my head. And then someone else looks at the painting of the house and goes, that's also what it looks like in my head when I see a house. Mm-hmm. And then when you're laughing, how much more than my father was a hardworking, is a hardworking, he's in the 70s, he's still removing oil tanks outside of Boston. I'm looking at a peer who tells me, his father is 24 years younger than I am. <laughs> you, you always can beat everyone in that, in that regard. I thought I considered that. You have years on my dad, which is wild. But, I but if I can I'm sitting here you. absolutely your peer. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm honored. But if you, you make me laugh, what you did all those years ago, I was watching it last night. What a privilege that what my we, preparation – I was – What's that? What were you watching? I watched it all in the family, and then I watched your documentary that's, that's yet oh, to come, come out. out. So I was watching it, and I cried when Archie's in the, in the elevator. I'm tearing yeah. up. Yeah. I, 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 I will see that, you know, 150 more times, I'll cry every time. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's funny because Gary Shandling always talked about, uh, you know, 
how when he was writing uh, that it was always about obstacles to people connecting or loving each other. And I think he was inspired by this acting teacher he had named Roy London, uh, who said that all these stories are ultimately about love. And I think when you think about scenes like that and Archie and his obstacles to connection, That's right. that whenever you have that look in his eye, like that he loves Meathead, Mm. It mm. killed you. It crushed you. Uh, that everyone around him loved him so much, and he's ranting and raving, and all they really want to do is just be nice to him and have him be nice back. That's right. That, especially as the series evolved and he warmed up mm-hmm. and he learned some lessons, uh, it was just so powerful. And Gary always talked about how rare it was that people would drop their facades and really tell the truth and admit that. Mm-hmm. And those mm-hmm. episodes, like the elevator episode. Good Lord. Oh, I love that. And that, uh, have you seen the show yet? The, uh, the documentary? I haven't seen it yet. You yep. just sent oh, it to so me. You have, uh, it, Tuesday night, it, it, it'll be on. Uh, okay. What's the name of it? Uh, just another, Norman Lear colon, just another version of you. And that'll be on PBS? That'll be on uh, PBS. Yeah. And it, then, Oh, we, I've seen the documentary. I thought you meant the other documentary, that you did uh, about America, America Divided. Yes. Oh, well, that's all right. I don't know if that's been on. I think it's been on. Yeah. I don't uh, know. I, that, I that's see. five weeks. Of, oh, wow. Yeah. Depending on how they cut it. I don't know how they cut it. Sure. But I did one episode on one particular problem. What was that? What was the problem? It was, uh, God, I can't get over it. It was uh, housing and yeah. in New York. How impossible it is for a young family, or no, but a family making a reasonable living uh, in today's world who cannot afford to live in the city, Mm. and especially black families. I I visited with a dozen of them in a in a group of buildings uh, where they were they were with long term leases. They were being forced out. And they were being forced out if they couldn't be forced out by rising rentals and so forth. Uh, they were being forced out by uh, by landlords who were doing carpentry or mm-hmm. fixing a stair, putting up a wall, tearing it down, doing work that raised dust and debris among the apartments, you mm-hmm. know, around, and and causing illness. And I I I couldn't believe it. Hmm. It's still crazy. I mean, this is the current issue. I mean, right? This is, it sounds like something we should have figured out by now, but the city's getting oh, worse. Oh, it's, ha- it's happening. Gentrification, it's called. Nice word. Uh, but you know, as I talk about it, I'm sitting in this beautiful space. Uh, what am I doing about it? Hmm. I ask myself that all the time. What the hell am I doing? About I know what I'm doing. I'm buying those apartments. <laughs> <It's an> investment. <laughs> I thought you were to save the day. No, is it, those sound like uh, profitable neighborhoods. That's crazy. But you know what people never talk about, it seems, is that all of the laws for uh, you know buying homes, it was all so segregated for just a hundred years. Just the mm. way the entire, the entire city and the state of New York, uh, the rules for you know, new communities uh, really created all of these 
bad neighborhoods. And it was the the law created so much of the poverty right. uh, around the country, and it was housing laws. And people never talk about that. People, you know, communities get isolated in poor neighborhoods with bad schools, and and the government set it up that way. What did you do about it then, Norman? Well, that's what they, the government set it up, and then they pass fair housing laws, and then they find ways to use the fair housing laws to continue the practice yes. of denying people the right to live. Isn't it amazing Even, we have a presidential candidate who is prosecuted for uh, not allowing people to rent properties and you know uh, and segregation? That's, that's what came to mind, obviously, was Trump. Watching All in the Family, though, last night, it, it – Raise an interesting thing because Archie in the episode that I watched was bragging about cheating on its income taxes. It's this wonderful, it's this wonderful scene, and he's like, everybody cheats, like uh, like Trump, like the Donald, yeah, exactly. But then I was like, so that's the dangerous side of I don't know. It's like when we get when that gets carried away, we have a rally of. I'm not saying it's a bunch of Archie bunkers, but we have a lot of people. Yeah. Siding in a very binary way with like, no, Archie is right. The other characters are wrong. You should cheat on your. It's 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 one sided. What do you think about Trump and and the things that Archie and Trump agreed with and and the missing other voice of that? I started off uh, coming back to it. I started off thinking Donald Trump was the middle finger of the American right hand. Mm. Uh, <laughs> leadership, if you look at leadership across the board, what what do people, what can people expect, the ordinary citizen, the average citizen, when, uh, I can't remember the name of the pharmaceutical company, IPEN, IP. The EpiPen. EpiPen. Yeah. When you get that behavior. When in the automobile industry, Takata with the airbags and all the other. Right. When uh, Wells Fargo, you know, and Goldman Sachs, and uh, I will never forget Elizabeth Warren. So I remember that. Uh, I mean, I wish we had a couple of dozen Elizabeth Warrens on either side of the aisle. Mm hmm. Uh, but leadership is so disappointing across the board in, in business. I mean, when I think of business, I always think of, despite the fact that everything in nature suggests nothing can grow forever, mm. <laughs> the American corporation has to have a profit statement this quarter larger than the last. Mm-hmm. And it's been going on for years. And everybody knows it's lunacy, it's, and it continues. It's amazing, though, that all of those people who are struggling in very real ways and you know it makes sense that they think all these systems are corrupt i'd love somebody to change this that they pick the worst human being (laughs) on earth who is completely self-interested there's no part of him that really is going to fight against the all these practices Mm -hmm. he that they that they actually believe he's the guy who's going to save me he cares about me. And they they want someone to do it so badly that they can't tell that that's the guy who's who steals from you. That's the yeah. guy who has never done anything for anybody right. his entire career. I love that they say on The Apprentice, he would always say, you know what? 
I'm going to give you 20 grand myself for your charity. And that he never, ever wrote the check himself. Hmm. He never wrote the check himself. And he says he has $10 billion. And that's what I find fascinating. Why him? Like, how do these people not know he's not the guy to execute what you wish he would execute? It's the guy in the casino who's comping your hotel room, but mm. you're losing your mortgage, right? <laughs> exactly. But you're like, yeah, but the buffet, right? I mean, how do, what are people so mad at? I love that he's the middle finger. But if you're really trying, and I sometimes try to be empathetic, I should try all the time, to Trump supporters, if you're watching a big, blustery, middle finger, blowhard bully, you start to get a little bit, I don't know, Maybe I, I could see these people getting excited, going like, this guy is going to shake it up. It's like you go in the voting booth and there's a gun and then there's a post-it note with like some political jargon on it. They're like, I'm going to go with the gun. The gun's loud. It's dangerous. It's stupid. But I, well, they, what about all of those people too? I, I, you painted a picture about some segment, one segment of the culture. Mm. What about the? Uh, uh, how large is the segment that has little hope? Mm. And the best way of saying "fuck you" is take this piece of shit. Go yeah. ahead. It's yeah. just arson. These people want to. Just burn the whole thing down because none of it's working for them. And I guess in that sense, you would say, okay, maybe Trump's the perfect guy. But I think Trump doesn't burn it down. He's just in the pocket of everybody. Yeah. But, but aren't we on to something where we're talking about the, the amount of families that have don't have sufficient reason to hope? Mm. I mean, I can't imagine waking up without hope. I don't wish to wake up without hope. Uh, but families who, you know, scratching out a living, aching to get kids to college who may be, you know, in their teens and not ready, but how do they find the money to do it? Doors are closing in that area all the time. Uh, I don't know. And 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 for a uh, a form of government that's supposed to depend on an informed citizenry, mm. you know, they go to television, they watch people yelling at each other, and bumper sticker philosophy, no context, no context. You supply in this interview, you you're in. There's some context. Mm. Not just because it's long enough, but you by nature, personality or something. It's hard to explain what I mean by that. But mm. uh, hey, people ache for context. What does it mean? Help me understand how it connects to everything else. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I, as a far more sophisticated individual than the average, ache for leadership in the White House. I've written five, maybe four or five presidents. Uh, you, you know about the my always saying I my grandpa. I had a grandfather who said, "Dearest, darling, Mr. President." Yes. So that's the way I I've always addressed these letters to my dearest, darling, Mr. President. <laughs> uh, as old as I am, older than uh, considerably older than you, I've been able to say for some years, I need a leader. 
Mm. I need somebody to help me understand so much of what I don't understand. And uh, the country aches for it. I know. So anyway, but back to people who have so little reason. Does that help you understand the appeal to someone like Trump? If they have yeah, no... Well, yeah, well, it's, a, it's the best way I can see, logically, to say, screw you all. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah I can't do any worse. <laughs> it's dog shit in a mailbox. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, why not? It's yeah. like throwing a brick at a window, I guess. It's that yes. Ho- that it's hopeless same, sort of act. Yes, by somebody who would never consider throwing a brick at a window. Right. Did your like political consciousness uh, come out of doing All in the Family, or was it before then? Or did you get pulled into it just based on the premise of a, of a show? I think – well, you know my dad went to prison when I was a kid, when I was nine. Uh, and I've talked about this a lot. But – and then I ran into Father Coglin. I knew as a Jew there were people who hated me because I was Jewish. And I'm reading now that anti-Semitism is alive and well and and coming back. There's an article yesterday in the New York Times. Um, anyway, so I learned that oh, well, people that hated me because I was Jewish and, and uh, my father was away. But I had a civics class and I remember Miss Nevins. <laughs> teaching civics. Uh, so I knew there was a constitution and a bill of rights and a declaration and all those things. And I loved what America promised to be. Uh, and, and and I could go to the words that made those guarantees. And that meant everything to me as a kid who was a, afraid of being... By the way, that kid in me never went away. That's why that they chose, the two women who directed it, chose to use that kid. Andrew High School, you know the name Andrew High School? He's the longtime chairman of Time, Inc. Mm-hmm. And when Life Magazine was huge and Time Magazine was huger and so forth. And he was a giant, big guy, great, great guy. And the first Republican, maybe not the first Republican, but a Republican who joined the Board of People for the American Way, and he was just a great friend. He passed, and they asked me to speak at his memorial. And I talked about, uh, at his memorial, which was at the New York Public Library, which his name is connected with forever, uh, and I talked about around him being ever aware that a large guy liked me. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah, but that's, I couldn't, I was able to say it because it was so real and everybody understood it, but I couldn't shake the fact that as old as I was, I was older than he, uh, as well as I had done and everything else, there was a kid in me who couldn't get over the fact that this large guy loved me. Yeah. What do you think about this large guy? Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I like him. That, that's, <laughs> that's part of what I, I didn't think of it in those words specifically. But uh, 
but you bring this to the table. <laughs> My <You> go know, ahead. <laughs> the, the, no, the, the the ability to talk about these things. Oh, for sure. The isn't it interesting that you to, still feel? Do you still feel it now? Do you, oh, sure. How much does being an outsider and all the pain you've experienced? It's a cliche question, but let's dive in. How does it feed your comedy, your art? That you have this itch that you want to scratch. You still after all your success, want large goys to love you or whatever it may be. Yeah. And I go around collecting father figures. Judd is another father figure. Well, I do that too. <laughs> like I, I, uh, and it has nothing to do with age, yeah. father figures. But my father figure went so far as the fathers of, uh, of our country. Yeah. I mean... You had uh, founding father figures. <laughs> well, yes. But that's... I've, I've lived with that for a long time. You were you were raised... Not... not I mean, I, I, I'm sure I didn't think in those terms. But when I was a kid studying civics or being taught civics and learning what this country meant to the world of people who were different... Uh, and then, as a Jew, I was I was very little different when I compare myself to a black kid. Sure, I mean I was aware of all of that, made aware by what I was studying. It's, it's worth repeating and repeating and repeating that because kids should be studying civics. They should know what this country yeah. is all about. Yeah, we've been taught we're God's chosen. That's all you know. We're. But be, and oh, sorry. nobody's God's chosen. <laughs> or are, are we all God's chosen? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember the first time I heard that, that, uh, you know, I grew up Christian and reading a lot. Like you first, did? <laughs> 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 There's stuff in the Bible about the favoritism of God uh, towards Jews. I don't just mean in the first half. In the New Testament as well, they talk about first to the Jew and then the Gentile. And I was raised yeah, with that. Yeah, but then there's also all of the animals that are going to rain down on us. And uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, oh, well, sure. There's a lot of spite, too. Yeah. <laughs> you guys get the full spectrum. <laughs> but did feeling like an outsider... Uh, fuel your creativity. I have to imagine it did. It, for me, growing up being uh, fatter than the other kids did help. That's a cliche, but I, I, I felt like I had to develop more of a personality because I wasn't gorgeous. You know what I mean? That's not to say gorgeous people aren't talented as well. But, but, but you're great looking. Well, Norman... <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I would go as far as to say, did that fuel your ability to write great bits for Jerry Lewis, where he would trash the place filled with goys? <laughs> yeah, is that you know, that, that tap into like the mad Jewish guy just creating chaos? Yes, for the establishment. Because I always felt that way as a kid that I didn't think of it in those terms. I didn't really understand what it was, but I love that the Marx Brothers looked. That everything is corrupt. They didn't like all the handsome people in the tuxes who had money, you know, at the opera or at the races. Uh -huh. And there's something visceral that I didn't understand until I was much older that I liked that they uh, were going up against all of these authority figures. Yes. Uh -huh. Outside, we're keeping them down, or you know, they would punch Harpo in the first five minutes of a Groucho of a, of a Marx Brothers movie, and then. They could do anything to anyone because someone punched Harpo in the face in the mm. first five minutes <laughs> of, of the movie. And that seems to, for me, like that's what I 
always loved about you know comedy. what you know what talking about that reminds me of no I, I'm not, I haven't asked anybody but I've been thinking this I'm making no sense mm. until I get to what the fuck yeah. I'm going to. <laughs> uh, I loved burlesque. You probably didn't see burlesque the way I saw burlesque mm. because it was gone by the time. Yeah. yeah uh, I mean, I visit certain websites now. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know. I'm joking. <laughs> but I'm talking about the comic and the straight man. I mean, yes. burlesque was about the sketches mm. for this kid anyway. When I, the one year I was at college at Emerson in Boston, there was a Scully Square, the whole fucking square is gone, and an old Howard, which was the oldest burlesque company in the country. I never missed a Saturday. Hmm. And I would see Rags Ragland, I don't know if that's a name anybody, and Joey Fay, and these glorious comics and straight men. And, uh, and I think of the United States today, leadership is the straight man. The straight man knew everything, and and you knew he was full of shit. Mm. But he knew everything. Yeah. And he had the comic run, walking in the walls. Yeah. That's the relationship. The the Bud Abbott is the country. Yes, well, Bud the, Abbott the is the country, and Lou Costello <laughs> are, the, are the victim people of that... But doesn't that kind of go back to what we were saying? What your work has done is is shown both the straight man and the comic. And I think we're becoming more and more like straight men because we're all on the record all the time. We've all taken sides. No, I yeah. think I think it's we're very more, binary. I think in the great scheme of things, the American people are the comics. And mm-hmm. they have the straight men, our leadership that I was talking about earlier, that has us bumping into walls mm-hmm. and craving for somebody to show us the way. Don't come back to us with the friggin' poles. Point yeah. and tell us, look, you sent me, I love the, I love the metaphor, it's not a, the hill. You sent me to the hill where I have the view. Don't come back to me and ask me what to do. Yeah. Help me, tell me, show me, yeah. lead me. Suddenly Donald Trump is talking about term limits. Do you think that's part of the issue? Is that it's just career politicians, and so people are well, doing a lot of things they, they, they themselves don't agree with to survive. A congressman, a congresswoman. I mean, they get elected. They've got to be thinking of two years later. Yeah, it's so short. It's very short. Hmm. It's very short. They walk into the office. They go to the phone looking for help for next time. I get those calls all the time. I gave money to a few people, and then I realized, oh my gosh, I've hit the list. I've hit the list of people who know that I will donate to uh, Democratic politicians. And so every once in a while, I just will get calls, and they're like, oh, Senator so-and-so is on the phone. And, and for a moment, you get excited. You're like, yeah. this person loves me. me. Yeah. This person wants to be my friend. And then yeah. they call. They, you know, and what's funny about those calls, and I'm sure you've been getting them for forever, is they have to chat you up a little bit. Yep. Yeah. So they show some interest. And you don't know if someone's like, he's the guy that produced Freaks and Geeks and yeah. did Train Wrecker, whatever. They have to act like they like you. And then they ask for money, but this it's is, a hilarious conversation. I have this is absolutely my history in this town and this business. I have gotten calls from all of those people mm-hmm. over the years, 
And some of them talked long enough to say, uh, you know how to reach the American people. You're reaching the year. We got this, whatever the hell Mike Wallace said in the film, 120 million people a year, a, a week. You're reaching the American people. I have to sp- I talk to you. Nobody, but nobody, including some people that became friends, ever came to me that really seriously wanted anything more than my Rolodex or my checkbook. That's yes, really. Nobody gave a shit for what I had to say. My, my, ever. Yeah. That reminds me of a joke in The Office. Did you watch The Office, the British Office? Yes. Where Ricky Gervais's character, who I think is very, has got some notes from your shows uh-huh. for sure in his style. Uh, I mean that as a compliment. He has that joke where he goes, People come to me and say, David, how are you such a great boss? How are you so amazing? What, how can we be more like you? But they don't, and that's a tragedy. <laughs> he's, he's, he's just a fantasy world where, like, I was going to joke that I get those calls and then people ask for some way to meet you or whatever, you know what I mean? Or, or people want some friend of mine's email to for a show, but the first 10 minutes is some sort of smoke blowing. What do you wish people would, would ask you for other than those things? I mean, well, what do you really think I should do? <laughs> just, yeah. You know? Who were the best politicians that you've known? I mean, obviously, Elizabeth Warren is is one of them that we really respect right now. But who were the people that you thought, their heart is in the right place, and they didn't let the country down? Uh, you know, they weren't elected. They were political people who uh, spent their lives around politics or in jobs, yeah. running things, but not elected. I'm trying to think of, you know. And what is that divide? So the career helpers who are really fighting for causes. Is there a reason why those people don't want to run for office? Like, don't we all think like David Axelrod seems pretty sharp. Like those people don't want to make that leap. You think John Podesta, Mm -hmm. Tony, uh, his brother, I know them well because Tony Podesta was the first, uh, head of people for the American way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he's become a major lobbyist. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. You know, he as much as left uh, office uh, and, and joined the lobbyists hmm. as a major company. Uh, but for some reason, they have their little enclave and they listen to the people who are advising them and they don't really, uh, I mean, I can't, tens, hundreds, thousands, I so many meetings, people seeking my opinion about something, and never, ever really heard or cared. Hmm. But you you have to run into that. They're calling you for... Well, I know that you, I, I do a, a joke in my stand-up act about paying a lot of money to meet the president. And I talk about how anyone can meet the president if you just write the check. And then you will get 30 seconds with the president to chat with him and take a picture. And how when I met him, all I wanted to know was if he liked my movies. Yeah. Because I knew he wasn't going to take my advice on anything, that everyone else is trying to talk about health care. And I just want to know that if he liked Knocked Up. Mm. Uh, because if he said he did, that will actually make me feel better for the rest of my life. But I'm probably not going to move the needle with him in my 30 seconds. That's really uh, funny. But – yeah, I mean, there are people that I, I I feel like 
are good people like Al Franken, Senator Franken seems like somebody who there's no need for him to be in politics. Mm. He really made a choice to see if he could have an impact and you get no sense that it's about special interest or anything else. He's a very, uh, a man who's a very sound financially doesn't need to be there, but mm. it, it doesn't seem like there's many people like him in those positions. Mm. Uh, I feel like Al Franken is almost like a spy <laughs> in the Senate. He's like a person you know that's a, you've known for a long time who can tell you what's really yeah. happening and what's bogging it all down. Ultimately, what, where where do you land now that it's the end of the, this this president's administration about how he did? My sense. Uh, and I can't articulate politically why. My sense is 50 years from now, he's going to be judged to be, have been a great president. Hmm. Can I say, when I sat with my Uncle Larry, who, again, reminds me in the way that he's funny of Archie, and my father's there, and I'm recording it, because like Jed, I love to record conversations yeah. with my family. My Uncle Larry's sick, and it's it extra special to talk to him. And they're talking about all the old neighborhood and stuff. And when Obama comes up, you get a little tense politics or whatever. And they just were like, in 50 years, he's going to be revered as the greatest president we've ever had. And they railed on Trump in these thick working class South Boston accent. You know what I mean? Like just real guys from Somerville. And they were so – just made me so happy that they're so and democratic and liberal. Since you're close to this uncle and yeah. he's a Trump person. Oh, he's not a Trump person. Oh, I thought you just said no. He, he they love Obama. They love Obama. Oh, well, you're talking about they say this about Obama. For yeah, 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 yeah. Excuse oh, I me. Thought yeah. You were saying I was about unclear. Trump. No, no, they don't like Trump. It made me happy because yeah. for a second there, I was like, it could go either yeah. way, maybe. Yeah, I think he's a fascinating president because he's clearly a very good man trying to figure out how to get something done in a system that's super crazy. And there's obstructions everywhere, and he's trying to and and figure it who out. Was, who was told by the guy who runs the Congress, as the country was told early on, he will not get his way about anything. We will see to her. Mm. And they said that about the Supreme Court. John McCain said that the other day. We did will you not see allow- what I did? I've got a wonderful Twitter I've had this morning. I, no, yesterday it was up to 300,000. I've never done anything that oh, wow. got that kind of attention. <laughs> But I just, uh, I, I, there was an, there was, where did I find this? There was a picture of McCain and his words uh, about, uh, I mean, that very statement. Yeah. And I said uh, something about, uh, if I live to be a thousand, I won't see a, a disregard of the Constitution as brutal as the Frank as something, something like that. Hmm. Hundreds of thousands. Wow. Hmm. That's great. And, uh, 65 million people watched one episode of Maud. <laughs> and now there's 100 million, 165 million, 60, and now 100 million people follow Justin Bieber. <laughs> like it's different. <laughs> Things, the platform has changed. But we were talking about how you've seen every uh, change in media technology from yeah. the beginning of television to well, event computers, TV. then the internet, then streaming. 
And I, the conversation that Pete and I were were having was, you know, as someone that you know served in World War II and has seen so many changes in America, do you think how is this time different than other times? Because we, we were saying, but World War II, it must have felt like just the world was on fire. And how does this moment feel different than other periods you've seen of conflict? And you were saying, or is it the same? You know, World War II, I mean, the villain was so villainous. And it was so clear, the black and white of it. This is not a racial statement. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it was so clear. And uh, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And uh, and with that, you know, I've got this. I'm so tired of of, of uh, this business. Of thank you for your service. Mm. You know, I I hate I hate all that. Thank you. And the flag I wasn't pin, going to the flag pins. I, I wasn't going I, to at all. I. It's just the, our attitude as a country is just we don't look ourselves in the mirror and see ourselves clearly at all. We don't even look in the mirror to see ourselves. Uh, maybe to fix our hair, but not see ourselves. <laughs> and certainly no sacrifice. <laughs> There's no major sacrifice no. asked of people anymore. No. So, I mean, what happened with the way the country came together was just the way I wanted to enlist the next day heeded my mother's warning that she'd die if I did (laughs) until I couldn't bear it anymore and then I enlisted but I represented a feeling that was rampant you know and uh and when the war was over we won that war it was such a difficult war to win and uh and then we, with the Marshall Plan, helped Europe get back on its feet. And we had every reason to think of ourselves as the good guys. But, and we were good guys. But we became obsessed with this notion of being, you know. Savior. Uh, and, and, and slowly began to believe we were God's chosen. And we were told that. I mean, leadership gave us that. Uh Look how they could lead. They could succeeded with that. <laughs> uh, People get mad when politicians don't say that. Like if a politician says, I don't think we're any different than anybody else. We're all people. <laughs> yeah. It's like you have to say you're but religious. Nobody's, nobody's really tried that. Nobody, as a Christian, you know, no, there's, nobody has really tried. Listen, let's pay attention to what we get from here from the Bible. You know, we're here to love one another. Mm. We're here to take care of one another. We are our brother's keeper. Uh, and mean that. Mm-hmm. It's not a good business, I guess, to not be. I, I'm, well, I'm not saying no, that's no, good. No, no, I understand. <laughs> but, that's, but you're absolutely right, and that's well said. It's not good business. People want to be cutthroat and hoard and, I mean. What's in it for me? Yeah. It's, it's a bad feeling. It's interesting how Michelle Obama is the one person who speaks to that so eloquently. Oh, wasn't she great? Yeah. Wasn't she great? I would like to see Hillary have eight good years followed by Michelle. Oh, wow. That'd be great. 
Wow. Can you imagine? I'd, I'd sign up for that now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll count that. Uh, you know, in interest of your time, we always talk about the meaning of life and everything, the big picture. We've been kind of dabbling in it through all this discussion, politics included, but it's I, I just am so eager to talk to you, not because of your age, just because of I love asking people what they think is going on here. And you do probably have wisdom because of your years. What did, What is going on here? What, what I'm is, in the middle of a lovely conversation with guys I like. <laughs> a pretty woman sitting. If I'm looking in this direction, I see a lovely face there. Yeah. Is that to say you don't worry too much in about... surroundings I love. What? Is that to say you don't worry too much about outside of the moment? No, of course I'm worried. <laughs> what, are we, what the fuck have we been talking about? <laughs> no, I mean even further zooming out. Like what is life? What is the purpose of life? Uh, God and all of that. I think there are... Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I believe there's a reason... There's a uh, – the most amazing thing is as long as many people as we have been through the centuries, as many of us have left the planet, <laughs> nobody's ever come back. We don't know anything about what follows life. Hmm. Now, there are people who claim they do, but they have no proof. And there are people who claim on faith that they do, but again, they have no proof. I think everybody's entitled to believe what they believe. I wish that, I, but but I also think if you take 200 people sitting in the same church or synagogue or mosque or, you know, knee to knee for months or years, reading from the same sacred text, everybody's compact with the Almighty, with him, her, God, whatever the word is, is different. No two alike, like no two snowflakes, no two, no two alike. You mean everyone's interpretation, even though they're in the same building in the same text, they're experiencing yeah, it differently? Yeah, whatever compact you have with God is... I mean, it's inexpressible mm -hmm. unless you'd care to do that now. To express it to you? Yeah. <laughs> it's inexpressible. Yeah, I don't I, have any mushrooms. In my conversations, <laughs> you know, they can go to the sacred text and they can go to the law. I mean, but, and I have the same, uh, you, if you want to call it God, call it God. Some, something, there'll, there'll be an answer or not. Mm. Uh and I, I live very comfortably with that and can love my neighbor that way because it makes good sense to me. Uh, and I believe everybody's entitled to that compact and their belief and their belief system. I wish we could get it out of the public square. Hmm. I wish there were people who, if even if they felt they were better than the next guy because they were of this belief system that they would, or that they would get to God or heaven or whatever, you know, before. I am reminded, I helped a woman 
who was driving a taxi some years ago uh, get I, we had a long conversation on a long drive and I learned that she had just sent her her two, her two daughter her second of two daughters was graduating from college she had been working she was her husband left her when the babies were young hmm. and I said what are you doing she says it's my turn I'm going to go to college at night now drive during the day and so forth I said I want to help you if your story is real I had somebody check and so forth her story was real I helped her through college hmm. and uh, this was a woman whose back of the head I knew and a little bit of her face yeah <laughs> uh, and years later and we were in touch for a little while, and then, you know, many years later, we hadn't been in touch, and so forth. I get a letter from her. Uh, I forget which fundamentalist Christian uh, she had. She, she found God deeply Christian and wanted to save me because I had been good to her, and she loved me, and I knew she loved me. But I couldn't go. I couldn't do what she wanted me to do to be saved. Isn't that funny? And this woman, I just heard from her daughter, who I'm in touch with, uh, just passed last week. She'd been uh, in a state of dementia for a couple of years. But with all the love in the world, she wished me you know, to help me get where she was going to God. Uh, I had to become the Christian or join. Right. So we parted loving one another on that basis a lot of years ago. She just passed. I I think it it illustrates what I mean when I say I think that those religious beliefs want to be part of the congregation and the family out of the public square. Hmm. Every trace of it out of the public square. Well, how did it feel when she said, as someone who used to do that, by the way, I've had friends be like, it's a, it's kind of an insulting proposition. Here you were. I didn't feel insulted. You, were, you didn't feel insulted? No. I thought it was just, it was all love. That's she, great. She meant it. Pardon me that way. And uh, so it didn't hurt your feelings. It was just kind of, oh, that's nice. Did no, you? I was sad. They made you sad. I, 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 I was sad. Uh, Why? I think I always say that the, the, the worst part of, of religion is when anyone really feels you have to join. Yes. I, yeah. You know, when people feel like both in small ways like that or larger ways with nations or mm-hmm. ISIS. Just, no, you, you you have to do this. Right. But that's what always concerns me when any politician says, well, this is, you know, it's a it's a Christian nation. It's a, under God. Yes. And what, how, how do you respond when people talk about the country that way? I, I have a constitution that says this can't be. <laughs> what do you mean? This is America. Hmm. This is not a Christian nation. Or a Jewish nation, or you know, it, this is not. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> I always feel like, you know, I'm not a religious person. I'm open to it, but I'm, 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 I'm uh, 
always struggling with that. But where I feel connection to God or something else is in creativity. And do you feel that way? Like sometimes when writing is going very well or ideas are coming, it really feels like it's coming from somewhere or I just have a feeling of connection. Yeah, so you go to bed with a second act problem and wake up with the solution. What the hell is that about? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think sure, I believe. I do think of God uh, as being like a flow that you're participating in. And I think maybe that's what made me sad about your story was there, Jesus said, we're not going to see the kingdom of heaven like, oh, look over there, look over there. It's not going to come by observation. Mm -hmm. But he says, but lo, the kingdom of heaven is in you, right? So it's not about, in my mm -hmm. understanding, some sort of afterlife reward. But when I see a man in the back of a cab not seeing the separateness between himself, a very well-to-do uh, producer, and creator and a cab driver and blurring those lines between those two things and saying your problem is my problem i see someone bringing the kingdom of heaven to that cab mm -hmm. and when it's As she did with her daughters getting them through college and sure you know, she this is people and help trying to help people understand that in the course of their days and by people i mean everybody there is a great possibility that everybody in the course of their days helped somebody smile, mm. helped somebody feel good about something, or did something bigger than that. Or, but in the great scheme of things, this being a planet among a billion, in a universe of which they say there are also billions, mm. you can't get your fingers close enough to measure the impact of... Anybody in your audience listening to this podcast now, helping somebody smile or whatever they may mm. have done in the course of a day that lifted another person. So tiny. What it, what they earn for doing that is is you can't that but their impact can't be measured. Uh, it's as vital and important is what Jonas Salk accomplished. When I think about your impact, uh, I, I always think, you know, when I was young and watched your work and Larry Gelbart's work and James Brooks's work, that it taught me ethics and compassion and humor. And in our industry, when you talk about just, you know, gestures of kindness or, or giving, how many people learned that from you and in their work now? Just, you know, just the, the splash in the pond from that stone of all of us sitting in rooms and we've been trained by you and how much laughter and understanding has come from our admiration and just being programmed by watching all of those shows. When I think about MASH, I used to watch MASH every day. Probably for, honestly, probably seven or eight years of my childhood, I watched mm -hmm. MASH every day. In New York, All in the Family was on every single day, and Mary Tyler Moore, and then Taxi was on every day, and what what effect that had. And then you throw a little Mel Brooks in there, <laughs> and, and you have a, a comedy person. Mm. But I, I, I do think that's, you know, the ripple of that. 
you must feel that. I mean, you meet so many of us comedy people who, who say that, but it really is a profound thing because it is a form of parenting, you know, to watch all in the family in those moments, like we're talking about in the elevator, Archie watching a woman give birth and seeing how moved he is. It, uh, it's as strong as any parenting you get just because mm-hmm. we can feel the, uh, you know, the humanity of people like you and Larry and James Brooks in creating it and what you think about life. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's why it's extra special when you do feel like something's coming through you. That's almost like getting out of the way. You have your agenda, but every once in a while you do feel like a radio picking up a song. And then you get those special moments. Do you think uh, a good laugh makes you feel better about yourself? Yeah. I've never had that, to my knowledge, had that thought before. But I was, you were just talking. Creating a laugh or just laughing? No, the laugh. You laugh and then you feel better. You feel better about yourself laughing. Absolutely. Maybe because it's a moment of truly... You are... Alive, yeah, and you're in the moment, certainly, and, and you're in the moment, certainly. You can't hate yourself while laughing at, yeah, 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 yeah. That's more for the quiet time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're completely outside of your own drama. I think it does kind of nudge you into another place. Like we were saying, it helps you transcend. You're laughing. Yeah. Where are you when you're laughing? I think you're that's in the, a- yeah, you're in the moment. You're laughing about your. We've talked about that Harold Ramis, I interviewed Harold Ramis once and, you know, he said he was Buddhist and he said, you know, life is ridiculous. So you have a choice. Uh, And this is someone who probably didn't believe in God. Uh, You have a choice. And he said, you know, I just thought about it. Like, okay, I can just be a nice person or not a nice person. I'd just rather be a nice person. And to him, it was as simple as that. Mm. Just That's We're just making that, that choice. Well, all you have is your behavior. That's something I think about all the time. <laughs> it's all you have. It seems so complicated, but really it just comes down to what you're going to do and what you're going to say. Like if you pull out a piece of paper that says, all we have is our behavior, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip out. I is um, it okay to keep I'm it? sorry, I have a touch of a nosebleed. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like everyone at home to know that the, uh, the, 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 the tissue is covered in blood, just drenched. <laughs> <laughs> Norman, I remember you told me one day, and I know you probably don't speak about this publicly, but uh, that you get up in the morning and you read the paper, and sometimes if you see that someone's having a problem of any kind, that you might send them something, send them some money to help them out, uh, that it was something you learned – was it from Frank Sinatra, you, you said? Or where did that come from? Well, I mean, I, I know some stories about Frank Sinatra, but... I, I kind of remember you saying that something Sinatra did. Like, huh? Just anonymous helping, just... Re- yeah, no, no, there's a great story about... Uh, he, uh, he fell in love with the actor Lee J. Cobb uh, when he saw Death of a Salesman. And... Uh, you know, I maybe I learned this from Frank. I don't know. I haven't thought about that. Or, or among the Franks of my life, mm-hmm. uh, being grateful for uh, the pleasure you receive, I feel a lot of that. You know, 
part of my attraction to Judd Apatow is my gratitude for the laughter, for what the pleasure he's brought me. Uh, so, I mean, here's the greatest one of the greatest gestures I know. Uh, he learned, uh, not that it was a, a secret, that Lee had a bad, had, had suffered a heart attack and was in the hospital and was broke because he was a notorious gambler. And uh, and he hadn't met, ever met the man. When, I don't know how he learned, when uh, they were about to release him from the hospital, Two nurses showed up at Lee J. Cobb's bedside and said that Mr. Sinatra was traveling. He would be out of the country for the next few months. His home in Palm Springs was available for him, he, Lee J. Cobb, to recover. Oh, wow. Wow. And Lee J. Cobb recovered for several months. He was able to bring his wife. Wow. You know, uh, I think that's a glorious story. There are other stories like that about Sinatra, but this one I was, I knew personally because I did a show, a, a film with Lee, and and uh, and I heard about it from him. You mm. know? Uh, I love that. But my God, <laughs> I like to tell the audience at home that Norman's shirt is just blood red now, right now. now. My shirt is red. <laughs> His sneakers uh, are red. <laughs> what would make a great, you know, really a major thing of this podcast is if I bled to death here. <laughs> Norman's bled out. Huh? He's totally bled out. We yeah. did give you the red wind guard on your microphone. <laughs> yeah. so that works out well. It was white at the beginning. Well, Norman, we do something on this podcast that I was so excited to do with you. And your answers can be as long or as short. To be honest, this is just something that I think would feel good to do with anybody or for someone to do with me. It's just the greatest lesson you've learned on different topics. So I'll just give you a topic. And it doesn't have to be profound. It doesn't have to be the perfect answer. Just whatever. <laughs> Believe me, it's not going to be. <laughs> <a> <laughs> perfect. What I mean is it's a safe <laughs> thing. It's just, it's just for fun. So the first thing we were just talking about it is what is the greatest lesson you've learned about success? Uh, don't mix it with... Uh uh, I don't know the greatest thing about success. <laughs> what, what is it? What is it? Define it. Yeah. What is it? Success is not uh, as we have been learned taught in America about how well you're doing in a career. Yeah. It's how well you're doing as a human being, living with the, your family, friends. You know who you are as a human being. That's right. That's where. I have thought, oh, yeah, I used to, you know, if only, uh, we, if we lived in the moment, we would understand this, the business of success better, mm -hmm. just totally lived in the moment, so that when you're saying goodbye to your kid going off to school, you have a moment where you're clearly looking him in the eye, and you feel one another. Mm -hmm. The kid goes, that's a successful moment. Mm. We have lots of those, but there's nobody around, including ourselves, to pat ourselves on the back and say, that was good. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's, I want to remember I did that while I lived through that moment well. 
I was just on the way over listening to a, a wonderful philosopher talking about what could a soul be made of. And he goes, I like to think, he doesn't believe this literally, but he goes, I believe that the soul is made of those moments that are truly lived presently, full, simple things that we were really, really there for. Like I said, the air is standing still, saying goodbye to your child, but really experiencing it. Yes. Because so much of the time, what you're t- we've been sold a bill of goods. It's what we have. It's money. It's toys. It's the new car. And I like to say, you say, what is success? I say, where are you going? Where are you going? Like when I look at people rushing in traffic, where are you going? You're already there, yeah. right? So that makes me want to ask Living you. Living in the moment. Yes. You know, there are those little words, over and next. You know, when something is over, it's over, you're on to next. But if yeah. there was if there was a hammock between those two words, ah. that would be what is meant by living in the moment. What a gift that is. That's a perfect picture for me. Yes. <laughs> it's funny. I was going to tell you one of the things that puts me in the moment, as your nose is bleeding, though, is asking what in this moment is lacking, what's missing in the moment. Uh-huh. When you really think about it, there's nothing missing. Nothing missing. It's funny to say that to you, though, because you're like, my goddamn nose is bleeding. But <laughs> 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 well, what is the greatest lesson you've learned about happiness? It's similar, but... It's the same. Same thing. It's the same. Living in the moment. If you're living in the moment, chances are you're happy. Yeah. So hard to do, though. You seem to be yeah. somebody that it doesn't seem too hard to quiet. When I hear a man say, I'm sitting here with two people three people that I'm happy to see, beautiful house. I see someone who's doing a pretty good job quieting the voices in your head that we all have. You're not enough. You're a fraud. Well, I think a lot of comedians get, you're a fraud, whatever it might be. I know I do. Oh, that's because you're a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> but you seem to have quieted those voices. Is there anything you did that helped with that? You mentioned that you do yoga. No, I don't know. When you... Do you ever get creatively concerned? Oh yeah, I'm I'm dead inside right now. <laughs> in this present moment, I only came to avoid sitting at a computer. I have no interest in either of you. <laughs> no, I I I do. Yeah, I, I I mean, I am kind of in a period like that right now where I feel like I'm trying to figure out what I want to say and what I haven't said. Yeah. Uh, um, I, you know, I felt like after we did the Larry Sanders show. Like Gary, on some level, felt like he really said the thing he wanted to say, and he never came up with something that I think in his mind would be as strong and as clear as the Larry Sanders show. And he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to just going to work for work's sake. And looking back, I think, oh, that was a pretty, it was, it's a perfect idea what mm. he was trying to express about show business and ego and love. And that's, I think, what gets tricky is, yeah. you know, if you did something really well, is there a whole new thought, a whole new way of looking at life uh, that w- it would be different? Or do you keep restating the same themes? Hmm. You know, like if you're Woody Allen, it's always about a guy and a 19-year-old girl. <laughs> <laughs> you get Miley Cyrus in your TV show and you just do the next thing. Um, what is your answer? I, I mean, I don't really have an answer. Know, I'm yeah. probably stuck on it for the moment because I'm trying to think about what's important to express. And what I usually get back to is it is the small things like 
Archie seeing a woman have a baby in an elevator being moved. That it's, it's usually after I spin out and lose my mind trying to think of something, I go as small as I can go. Yeah. That's why the work that I feel that I've done that has uh, seen like connected with people with something small. You get someone pregnant. How are you going to handle it? And it's that. Yeah. Teeny. You fall in love. You haven't had sex. You're scared of losing her. So you avoid it. Isn't it funny that both of you found profound impact in comedy just putting the focus on human birth? How crazy and trippy it is that we all came here out of a woman in an elevator or with Seth. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And we all, none of us are thinking about it. You pointed out the planet and the billions of planets. None of us are thinking about that. We forget how amazing it all is. How to help an audience understand, everybody in the audience, that they have impact. Mm. Yeah. That the reason I talked about this a planet among a billion and a universe among a billion. I mean, this. Hmm. And the human of the species have been here all this time and through all those planets. Hmm. Uh, everybody does something in the course of their day or a week or whatever that helps another human being. And and if you're measuring, given all of us in all these planets, I mean, you can't measure the the impact is the same. Mm-hmm. And it is like a smile. Sometimes you walk into a Starbucks and just the person behind the counter has a great vibe. Mm-hmm. And it might affect you for yes. hours. Or someone directing traffic. You ever see a crossing guard directing traffic and they're just doing it with their whole being and you're like, it's going to change my life. <laughs> but that is to me the crux of spirituality or, or a life well lived is uh, the teaching was always love everyone, feed everyone. And then I'm like, it's not just food. It's it's moments that we can give each other, and and experiences that we can give one another. That I think really is potentially the meaning of life. One of them, at least. I don't know. Do you have what? It, that made me want to ask you, Jed, because I don't think we played this game. What is the greatest lesson you learned about creativity? And then I'd love to hear Norma as well. I wish I had. I wish I had the answer for that one. Yeah. <laughs> that one. I, I. I mean, one of the most important lessons I've learned, and I've said this a lot, but is uh, the greatest gift that you can give other people is your story. Mm. And so, when I think about, uh, you know, your book, which I, uh, I think everyone should read, and just the influence of your life and your family and your father on creating characters and mm. and all of your shows and. And Archie Bunker, it's your story. You, you're sharing this, that story. And that was a hard lesson for me to believe that anybody cared. And I, I, it's funny because I, when I look at the path of my career, it's so similar to yours in terms of writing jokes for comics and then getting the opportunity to write on their shows and then slowly getting to uh, create a show and then a personal show. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there is a an evolution of finding the that place in yourself that has the courage and the ability to share the story, and I notice it with other people succeed. Oh, Louis C.K. slowly learned his craft, and then he was able to share 
himself mm-hmm. and his story. And then everyone connects in a big way, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, Phil Rosendahl and Ray Romano, just everything that's exploded has been that. Yeah. Mm. And so I, I, I always tell people that's it. If you could believe in yourself and believe that your story is worthy, which mm-hmm. is hard because you have to have some self-esteem, which is difficult, that that is the path. Mm-hmm. And I, as I look at uh, Gary Shanley's life, I'm beginning a documentary about him and his work. You see the exact same path. He, he, he was writing jokes. He was writing for uh, some of your shows, right? Didn't he write for Did he? Sanford and Son? Was that... I, that wasn't I, you. I, you had, I, I had very little to do with Kansas yeah. Sanford beyond. That was just fantastic. that was just a good check. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he wrote for Welcome Back, Cotter, and then he did his stand up, and it was very jokey, and then slowly it became more personal, and then he did its Gary Shandling show, and then he had a sense like, oh, I can go even more personal, and did the Larry Sanders show. Yeah, the, the, you're doing stand up has just knocked me out. You know? Oh, thank you. Isn't that fun? Oh. God, I wish I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you're pretty funny when you when you when you speak, and and you you want to. No, I, I I love it. I have a good time. But but you get out there and really do it. <laughs> just marvel at it. I yeah. think that's another example of trying to find the self esteem to share yourself. Well, isn't that people. what the stand up is doing? Is he saying these thoughts that I have privately are worth being amplified in front of seated people who yeah. pay it? That's a preposterous mm-hmm. notion. But just by virtue of doing that, it becomes a show. It becomes art. And I think that's that's special. How did you guys run into each other? We I was I did this podcast. He did a live podcast. I had never met Pete. This was five or six years ago. It's the most productive podcast of three people's <laughs> careers. <laughs> His manager is an old friend of mine, Dave Rath, who used to manage one of the improvs in Hollywood. And he said, will you do Pete's podcast? And I said, sure. And it was in Austin. And uh, the other guest was this great uh, comedian and actor, Chris Gethard, and Kamel Nanjiani from uh, Silicon Valley, the actor and comedian, and uh, Todd Barry. Mm-hmm another great comedian. And I didn't know anybody at the time because I wasn't doing stand-up and I wasn't in the scene at all. But since that podcast, I'm collaborating with Pete on his TV show. I just produced Kamel's movie, which will come out next year, I, I assume. Who's which movie? I love. Uh, Kamel uh, wrote an amazing movie about how yeah. his wife uh, fell into a, a coma. Uh-huh. Um, or Which was, is true. Or was placed in a coma by Kamel. Yeah. Uh, Talk about your story, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> when that's when they were first started dating, and it's this very unique love story. Mm-hmm. Um, Can about I just, falling in love with someone while they're uh, in a coma? My show is about a divorce. Kumail's movie with Judd is about his wife being in a coma, and we had the same exact amount of time it took for each of us to turn those traumatic events into comedy. With you, but it was exactly I got divorced right around the time that Emily uh, was in in the coma. Isn't that crazy? And now everyone's stories are coming out. So yeah, I, so say, I started working with Pete <laughs> and Kamel and Chris Gethard is now doing a one man show called Career Suicide off Broadway that's playing now to raves that I produced about all of his mental health issues and alcoholism and suicide attempts. And it's playing off Broadway now. Yes, mm-hmm. I, haven't heard, I haven't heard. It just opened I last week. Yeah. So. It's funny because I did Pete's podcast and now five years later, I'm 
working full time yeah. with everybody except Todd Barry. So I guess I got to call Todd. Todd, <laughs> what do you got? Hey, man. That's fucked up. <laughs> but who, what who, I do is I tell them. Who did the cast in the intro? Uh, well, uh, in his show, it, it's about uh, the fact that he has no money in New York and he's, he's a comedian. He hasn't gotten good yet. And he's a religious person. So he's always, in a way, uh, he's always in danger <laughs> with all the different attitudes and behavior that people have in New York. So he sleeps on a different person's couch. Uh in every episode because he has no money. So he's always trying to get on someone's right. couch. So one episode, it's Artie Lang. Another, it's Sarah Silverman and or TJ Miller. And it's he's couch hopping. And who is he? That's, that's me. That's Pete. Oh, you're playing the role. And he I'm plays the part. Myself. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. That's, that's terrific. <laughs> and that's something that Pete did uh, years back. Yeah. And so... It is sharing his story and Kamel sharing his story and Chris Gethard sharing his story. So as a producer, that's what I'm always pushing people right. to do. May, also because I have no imagination. Yeah, I, just, I never think of wizards. And for you're doing it for one of the HBO. HBO. Yeah, it's incredible. Oh, that's the one you sold it. How have you been enjoying uh, working on uh, One Day at a Time for Netflix? I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed it very much. Uh it's a, it's a different, you know, there are showrunners. Yes. So uh, I had to learn, I have to learn not to be a showrunner. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And let them be the showrunners. Yes. Uh, and it's, it, I, I've had a very good time. We, we did 13. Uh, it's really strange to think they'll all be released yes. at 12.01 January 6th yeah. across the globe. And a lot of people will watch the whole thing. And they'll days. know two days later yeah. approximately how many people may have seen them all. Right. You know, it's not very, very different. It's, you, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> I was interested that you run a room because I making TV for the first time. Obviously, not Judd's first time, but it's my first time. It's a it's a whole other skill set. I was oh curious. You're just like a funny guy. You're a writer. In my case, I'm a stand up and a writer. And next thing you know, you're managing other people's egos, inner office politics. You have to figure out how to be creative on a schedule. I mean, what was that like? Were you a quick study at it? Pete's his own Carol O'Connor. <laughs> He's difficult to himself. Yeah, yeah. I'm always fighting with myself. <laughs> so was Carol O'Connor. <laughs> yeah, well, that's another area we could talk about. Yeah. Do, was, do you, Jed had a great question that he gave me for you. Do you think that was essential, that strife? Like, did it bring out great performances? Did it enliven the whole? It, you know, you got to you look at the conclusion and whatever led to it had to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a big debate always at the Larry Sanders show. We would sit in the writer's room and there was always a split in the room. Would you rather work with a mediocre talent who was really fun and easy to work with or a genius who drove you crazy? I'd rather work with a genius who drove me crazy. Isn't that wild? Oh. But at the time it was, it was sound. painful. I mean, there had to be yeah. times. You know, there's stress and there's joyful stress. Mm. And this was joyful stress. That's you know, so whatever the stress was, the, you know, it winds up, you know, listening to a couple of hundred people laughing their asses off in a great, in a great performance. And by that point, you needed a laugh too. So it was, it was nice. <laughs> and, and I, and I got it. Nobody laughed harder. There's How did Carol Connor feel about you? 
Like if you were asking him, not at the end of the experience, but like in the middle when the show's hot, the show's amazing, but yet you're still really fighting hard. And he's at the dinner party with just friends outside of the business. How would he describe you in that process? Well, he, I think there are a couple of uh, uh, talk shows where he talked about me. It wasn't all positive. I mean, about having a difficult time or something. I don't. I, was it a recurring issue that he was fighting against? Like, if he said, "Here's what Norman's flaw is," whether it's in writing or conceptual. No, what what was it that he was battling against? Well, he was battling against himself. I think more than anything, his fear of failure. He, he didn't like ninety percent of all the scripts. Yeah. After a great reading. Yeah. Hmm. That's the, and, by the way, for our listeners, hmm. there is, I cannot imagine anything more painful than working hard on a script, which is the hardest thing in the world to do to get a, a gem. Yeah. And having your lead tell you it's bad after it kills at a table read. Yeah. My heart hurts. <laughs> after it kills at the table read. Yeah. yeah. I can't even imagine it. Oh, you haven't had the experience? <laughs> no, because, you know, when the Larry Sanders show was on, we would have bad table reads, and then Gary might be irritated because the show needed to get better. But if the show killed, Gary knew it was good. Uh, he, he never was wrong yeah. with his interpretation. There might be stress because he was tired, and he wished that the writers could do a better job so he could get more rest right. or more time to work on his acting. But he was never conceptually off base in a big way. And also, if the laughs were there and it rocked, he he well, felt good about it. How was Carol immune to the laughters? Most egos yes. would just bend that it killed. I don't know. He had his own uh, ghosts. Yeah, what whatever the hell it was. But you know, and you couldn't the, predict it. Like, the the uh, when he passed. I don't know if I told you this story. When he passed, and I went to see his wife, Nancy, I mean, a lot of people, she asked me to hold on till they left, and she took me to his uh, study. And she, the door was locked. I guess didn't want anybody wandering in there. And she took me into the study, and his desk, well, very few things on his desk, but one thing she told me, there was a, a letter that I had written like four years before that was on his desk that he never took away. And it was a letter telling him that despite everything we were going through and so forth, I loved him. Hmm. And his way of telling me, I conclusion I came to, his way of telling me he loved me as well was holding on to that letter. Wow. Hmm. You know, Isn't that we're versions of each other. We're not the same. It also parallels the story you tell about your mother throwing away the letters you sent her from war. <laughs> yes. Isn't that funny? It almost what seems... Is, yeah. oh, what is that story that all of the correspondence... You were writing all these wonderful love letters to your mom, like just flowery... And from beautiful. overseas, I wrote letters that she showed me when I returned that were... I read them. I couldn't get over them. They were like love letters. Yeah. And... uh and then a few years later, I said, gee, I'd love to have those letters, Ron. Oh, I showed them to you. I threw them away. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't that... 
as a hoarder, that also yeah. <laughs> but isn't that like a little cosmic wink that that happened first, and then you got love in the exact way that you understand love that someone held on to your love yeah. letter. Yeah, that I that's, I mean that's a good movie moment. Unless his mom <laughs> said to Carol O'Connor, "Don't throw the letter away." <laughs> he gets weird with the letters when he's tossing. Well, that becomes a dark comedy at that point. <laughs> what What is the greatest lesson you learned about comedy? making all these funny shows i don't know don't, don't don't be satisfied until you laugh oh wow isn't that funny when i talk to a lot of young stand-ups that's the advice i like to give i say if you were in the audience when would you laugh and yeah. i remember asking myself that question and the answer was i have no idea and that was when i was starting if you've done stand-up now yeah i am a stand-up i still do stand-up you still do stand-up. yeah are you going to do it some Wednesday, is it? with? I've done shows uh, with Jed many times. Yeah, mm-hmm. many times. That was one of the uh, things that helped us, I don't know, bond, I would mm-hmm. say. Doing Largo shows together, they're really fun. I think that's really fun. Um, I have so many others. What about family? Is there a great lesson you've learned about family? I'm very interested in family. <laughs> Are you married? Do you have children? I'm not married. I live with my girlfriend. I'm divorced. I got divorced. I got married yeah. when I was 22. And uh, she left me when I was 28. And now I'm currently living with the same woman for two years. But we've been together about mm-hmm. four. And I'm I'm very much in love. So I like, what about marriage and family? I mean, th- these are interesting topics. Well, I like marriage and family. I, I, I've, pro- I've proven it. I've done it three times. <laughs> yeah. What is it about it, though? People do keep going back. We know the divorce rate, but there seems to be something profoundly human about wanting to share your life with someone. I think you supplied the answer. Just that. Question. Uh, you know, I, I've got six kids. The youngest are twins are 21. Hmm. And... Uh, and my oldest is 70. Oh, my goodness. And it shocks me to say that. but it, uh, And they're all close. Is that That's right? the best thing. We'll all be together at Christmas. Wow. And Jews at Christmas having a blast. Yeah. <laughs> yes, with a tree. See, don't say we haven't done anything. We shared Christmas. <laughs> that was our great gift. <laughs> uh, well, that's wonderful. It's, it's, and you're close with your kids and stuff. That that must have been an I, interesting uh, yes. balance, given that you're in a field that requires so much of you. Was that hard to do to find a balance between family and your? It's. I like to think that comedians are all having an affair with comedy, and any marriage is like an open marriage. It's like you have your shows uh, and your work, and then you have your wife. Uh, did that? Was it hard? What did you do right and what did you do wrong when it comes to your family? I had, uh, one time I had five uh, families, uh, four families on CBS and one family on Mooncrest Drive. (laughs) 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 And where, who got most of my attention? Yeah. Uh, That's when they did 22 episodes. Oh my God. And that's when we did 22 episodes. That's crazy. Yeah. These wimps with 10. Yeah, we did eight. We're, we left it all on the field with eight. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I you asked me earlier and I, uh, about the difference in 
what I just experienced making 13 that are going to be uh, streamed. That's it's really very different. You, it can't be topical. Yeah. And uh, and the notion that somebody's going to watch all of them, or somebody, some group, a lot of people, watch, yeah, yeah, I'll burn watch through all of them instantly. Uh, I don't know. It's not. It's not theater. It, I don't know what to call it. Mm-hmm. But streaming is good, I suppose. It's intervenous is what you call it. <laughs> well, that's what that's what laughter is. An intravenous. Yeah, it's a drip. People will listen to anything while they're laughing. That's interesting. That's very interesting. We also always ask the question, can you remember a time that you laughed the hardest maybe in your life? If you think of a time when you laughed, just what comes to mind, I guess. It brings me to a sad moment. I like sad. Uh, I loved Nancy Walker. Loved Nancy Walker. And I uh, had the opportunity to do what was called the Nancy Walker Show. William Daniels yes, played her husband. Right. And, uh, and we didn't get it right. And I can't express how much I wanted to get it right because I just... I can't remember what the name is. Here's one. This is the moment I fell in love with her. It was a sketch that Harvey Limbeck and she did. Edward R. Murrow. I I mentioned names. I don't know whether you know who Edward R. Murrow was. He did a show called Person to Person. So he interviewed somebody in their home or their office or whatever, person to person. So this off-Broadway show had a scene with uh, with Harvey Limbeck and uh, Nancy Walker and a guy playing Edward R. Murrow. So the cables were all lying down. And there was, it's a kitchen. And it was a guy was a truck driver. And Limbeck is sitting there in a T-shirt and a cigarette in his, uh, 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 under his T-shirt. And uh, gross. I mean, he's... Just, and Nancy Walker, she's being interviewed because she's, in some context, the mother of the year because she's had nine. She has nine children in this tiny little woebegone kitchen. So she's sitting there, playing the most exhausted <laughs> human being that ever was, and the. Quickly, in the, early in the in the scene, Edward Amara is asking his last question, and he's out of there. And when he's out of there, they sit, Limbeck again, and then Limbeck looks at her, and then she looks and sees him looking at her, and then she recognizes something in his face. And you know he wants her, <laughs> and she's exhausted. <laughs> and she gets up out of her chair and backs off. And there are three steps that lead ostensibly upstairs, and the little children's gate in front of it. And the way that woman got up 
and backed off. <laughs> with Literally him, walking with, back with him sitting there, <laughs> following her, and backed up and got onto the second stair and closed this little gate. That was the scene. A tiny and gate. I felt. I owed her for the rest of my life. <laughs> wow. Oh, oh that's my God, great. How I laughed. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a joke that you remember writing that you were like, my God, I killed it? I just I just showed up for that one. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, that, you personally? No. Really? A, a, a joke that I there are a lot of moments, jokes and I don't know, I can't think of one. But they didn't stick with you. Not in that way, not in a story. No, I'm an awful lot of things I can remember being proud of. Hmm. Here's a question I'd like to ask anybody, and we can wrap up soon. I don't want to take too much of your time. Oh, you've done that. I have taken <laughs> up a lot of your time. Do you feel older, you, who you are inside? I, I know your body, you watch your body age, but do you feel older? I I truly feel I am the peer of whoever I'm talking to. That's great. If later this afternoon I'm with a 15-year-old, that's the way I'll feel. That's great. So, no, you feel like the same so person inside. I, absolutely. I just love absolutely. that. Absolutely. That's a like keeping that. a crispy moment. Yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> Norman, this was amazing. Let's get you out of here. Let's get you to that meeting with the 15-year-old. Okay. <laughs> you do this... So well. Oh. This has been so enjoyable. What a pleasure. You're a, li a living legend. I'm so yep. happy to know yes. you. And I'm so happy to enjoy your work. It's just such a I gift to all of us. Could, and, and that Sally's brothers, that, uh, that sketch you, I mean, that show you were looking at earlier. Yes. I will find it. Yes, we'll find it. He'll pull, he'll pull the same one. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank this, you all for being uh, here for us. Your show business. It took you every right. split second of your lives to get right to here. get to this moment. Would you say keep it crispy? It's how we end. The guest says keep it crispy. Keep it crispy. Norman Lear says keep it crispy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you, Judd. My pleasure. You got to say Thank keep you, it crispy Judd. Too. What a kick in the head it's been. <laughs> Keeping it crispy. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Keep it crispy. Thank you so much. Now leaving Nerdist.com.